Hey, listeners. Today, we are speaking with Tom Albrecht. Tom is an entrepreneur, educator, speaker, author, and executive director at the UB School of Management Center for Entrepreneurial Leadership. He's the assistant dean at University at Buffalo School of Management, where he provides strategic oversight of the Center for Entrepreneurial Leadership and works to advance the center's mission of invigorating the Western New York economy and community through entrepreneurial development. Tom's also the executive director of Blackstone Launchpad, which is designed to stimulate economic development and job growth by building and supporting entrepreneurial ecosystems across the United States and globally. So wait, you, um, you did a TEDx talk? I did a long time ago. Um, I did a TEDx talk on, I'm just trying to think what, oh, it was about, um, creativity and, uh, entrepreneurship and the uh the ability or the need my my thought about the need that in today's world of uh information and technology what we really need to teach students is how to be able to solve problems creatively identify the right problems be able to solve them um and that the best way to do that were to teach them some of the skills of the entrepreneur which relate directly to problem solving from a very early age and to maybe even as early as uh, kindergarten, start to weave creative problem solving into curriculums and keep it in the school system throughout. That's what it was about, roughly. And have you seen these uh, ideas implemented into education, uh, either within school or in uh, out-of-school activities? I think there's more and more of it, right? So it's um, it's a focus on the non-traditional learning, I guess the non hard science type learning things like music are those are all pieces of it and i have seen it at the um at the college level there's a there's a lot of activity around making sure uh students are exposed to creative problem solving and really learning how to think right that's creative problem solving is learning how to ask really good questions identify what the problem is generate uh a large quantity of ideas and then be able to pick the best ideas and then ultimately implement them. I love that. I, uh, so the new Da Vinci biography came out and obviously Da Vinci is widely considered one of the greatest minds in human history. Um, yes. And what you're saying is, uh, sort of what I've read so far in the biography, what made him a genius wasn't his born natural talent of a brain. It was his curiosity. Uh, when you look at his notebooks, he asked why for everything. So he was the kind of person who would wonder what the surface of a bird's tongue felt like. And that and yeah. that's and we, we seem to have this uh respect for genius, like it's something that only a few people can reach. But in reality, genius and creativity just stems from curiosity. And if you just keep feeding curiosity, you'll find your way in that direction. So what the skills that you're teaching or the skills that you're um advocating for we seem to have this respect for genius like it's out of reach for all of us when in reality genius and creativity stems from curiosity and and anyone can be curious you just have to ask questions and develop a love of asking questions and if you start doing that and you train yourself to do that you'll find yourself on the road to genius that's a great way to think about it when you do look um so i read that biography and it's fantastic right and the the fact that he was what as you said curious about everything i often think about what would da vinci think of our world today like what what would he do because there's so many there's so much stuff in front of you today compared to what he would have been exposed to back in the 1400s it makes you really wonder how would he have handled today's world 
um, with so many inputs coming at you all the time, which is, which is again, back to being curious. And then, and really now we have this need to, you know, we always used to talk about making sure there was plenty, plenty of breath and education, right? But now you could spend your entire life just learning about, I always use the example of if you uh, Googled uh, golden retrievers, you could probably spend your whole life reading every article about golden retrievers online. There, there's just so much information out there. So that ability to, to, to ask really good questions and find really interesting problems that need to be solved, you're, you're right on, I think, about that. that is headed towards genius for sure. I love that you brought up Golden Retrievers as an example, uh, just to give a bit of a specific example. You obviously work in entrepreneurial services and leadership. Um, one, th- one entrepreneurial goal of a lot of people today is establishing a niche and finding their audience and building a community, but with the internet. So for one, the internet allows you to access all sorts of information. So you can become an expert in your field in a lot shorter amount of time because all the information is right there at your fingertips constantly. But the other thing that uh, really makes the internet stand out is not only could you develop a niche, but you can also diversify within that niche to make your brand resilient. So you can now make videos, podcasts, written articles, and even just uh, picture displays on Instagram. You can set out tiles to sort of tell a story and establish yourself as an expert in all different mediums for one specific um, niche. I'm curious if this is something that... uh, you teach, for example, in CEO, uh, how something like niche, which by definition means focused, and diversity, which by definition means inclusive and wide, aren't mutually exclusive. Right. Um, I I agree with where you're going with that, and it, and the answer is yes, especially with students and um, and startups. So one one of the things I think it's really important is you can't. Everybody can't be your customer at the same time. So back to Golden Retrievers for a minute, right? Within Golden Retrievers, you can further segment that into different segments. We spend a lot of time trying to understand what is a reasonable segment that we can go deep in and own and then choose that segment, the best segment for whatever is we're working on as our beachhead market. Once we knock down our beachhead market, then we can go to other segments and other other verticals. So I think, yes, we do teach that. And I think your um, the way you talked about it is exactly right. And maybe another, another way to look at it is in today's world of being overwhelmed with information, a, mi- a mispronunciation of the word, but the, the saying the riches are in the niches, right? Where, where you can go really deeper. A lot of, a lot of Seth Godin's work where, let's own something versus being uh, just having a little sprinkle on top. And you can open a, a business. I just bought, bought as an example, uh, I forget the name of the business, but I bought it online, a sample of salts. And their entire business is about different types of salt. And they have hundreds of different types of salts that you can purchase and try from, you know, smoky to what it's just amazing how much stuff is out there. But that's a, that's a niche that they've owned the niche, but then they go really, really broad within salts, right? So the niche is salts or the niche is salts, and then they broaden out. Real, an important concept, otherwise in this world today of too much information, you, you don't have enough money to speak to everybody in the market. It's not possible. And when you're, especially when you're starting a company, if you own a segment, 
and it's small enough, what you should get from that segment is people within the segment, there's a, there's a bit of viral um, activity that happens because people talk to other people like them. So you get some free marketing dollars, et cetera, from really having the segment. You can identify communities where you can talk to people more about the area that you're trying to build your business in. I just hosted a murder mystery party last night, and I used this website called Your Murder Mystery, I believe. And it's a, it's a niche website. They sell all different sorts and all different genres of murder mystery parties. And then they make their money not just by selling the games that they create, but also for their products for people who want to uh, upscale their party and throw a bit more of an elaborate, uh, elaborate party or get more props involved. It amazes me how you can, re with the reach of the internet and with its ability to contact anyone across the globe, you can really... Uh, dig into infinity in a specific niche or niche. I mean, um, yeah, for sure. For sure. You, you, you really can. Coincidentally, I, have you ever watched a movie game night? Speaking of murder mysteries. Oh God, I love that movie with Bateman. <laughs> I, and, uh, I watched it last night, which just made me chuckle because I thought it was a, it was a fantastic movie of make you, make you belly laugh at the same time as there's a, a plot with a bunch of twists inside of it, which was, was it was a, it was a good movie, at least I thought it was. Not everybody would probably agree with that, but I thought it was a great movie. It was a very self-aware movie, too. Like, at the end, when um, she Rachel McAdams is telling Jason Bateman to charade what he's trying to say to her, and he's like, oh, that's cute how we come full circle. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was, it was, well, you would appreciate it from your background in writing, right? I thought it was, uh, was a well-written screenplay. It, so to speak. It was in the sense that it's a comedy and it had jokes in it. Some some comedies that fall flat, they rely, from what I can tell, and I'm trying not to sound like a movie snob because I swear I'm not. I, I'm sort of the guy where as long as I'm entertained by it, it's a good movie. Um, but I find myself bored at some comedy movies that rely too heavily on a comedic plot and not enough on jokes. It's like, if it, it's a comedy, write jokes into it. Right. In, in Game Night, I feel like every other sentence was a joke. Some good ones too. Some yeah, really I, good ones. I agree. Uh, back to the internet for a minute. What it, what I was going to say before I took us off on a uh, on a side journey there was the interesting thing. The good and the bad of the internet is uh, there's so many people that think the internet is there. The if I build a website, they will come. The internet's very very crowded, as you just alluded to. And it's a difficult e-commerce itself is is not an easy business today. That being said, um, one of my businesses that I have is in e-commerce, and um, we sell commercial lawnmower parts. And it's a very crowded space. It's a commodity, it, really, when you get right down to it. But what I have found, the internet is so crowded right now, it's difficult for people to shop. So if you can get a customer the first time, maybe through discounting or any method that you can attract them, you can often keep them because it's really difficult to go to 15 or 20 different websites and look at lawnmower blades and try to figure out who's got the best price, who's got this. So it still comes back to, even with e-commerce, it comes back to customer service, availability, um, the ability to deliver quickly, all those things. And then, then on top of it, you get this added pressure with Amazon where we our expectations are that when I order something, it will be on my doorstep in 24 hours or 48 hours, whatever it is, or less. And uh, that puts a lot of pressure on people. So, so the Internet's certainly a great tool for business, but it's not a panacea. 
it's also consolidating quite a bit. As you just mentioned, Amazon, we then have um, Alphabet, which is taking over the Western Hemisphere, and Alibaba, which is taking over the Eastern. It's, it's, it's consolidating into these, and then obviously Facebook as well, these, um, these giant companies that are edging out any other, any other competition or smaller competition in the, in the uh, technology sector. They're either purchasing the smaller companies or driving them out and stealing their, uh, their ideas. So do you feel like your personal um, navigation of the internet, do you, do you see this trend disappearing? Do you see there being such a, a need and a drive and a force pushing smaller creators into the internet that it will eventually naturally break up these behemoths? Or are we sort of at a point where we can't reverse it? Amazon owns too much, Facebook owns too much, they own too much information, and we have to navigate cautiously now as business owners. You, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, especially working with small businesses, which is what most of my time is spent doing. It's a really interesting question because um, these these companies are can be really bad for brick and mortar. If brick and mortar small business doesn't know how to use them as a tool, they can destroy brick and mortar. At the same time, they give, as you mentioned when we first started this conversation, they give anybody the opportunity to open a you didn't say storefront, but you were talking about owning information or a niche. Uh, they give anybody the opportunity to really, for very little money, open a storefront and compete on the internet. That being said, there are, you know, what are the, if we had to say, what are there, five or six companies that control the vast majority of the internet? And it is interesting to think um, what is going to happen with that. My guess, my hope would be that. Eventually, large companies become behemoths. They can't react and move quickly. And some small entrepreneur will come along someday to be the next Facebook, to be the next Google. Although I have a lot of trouble understanding how somebody knocks out some of these companies. But if not, it makes you wonder if we won't be in a situation like we were back in the days with Standard Oil, or et cetera, you know, 100 years ago where the government has to come in and think about do we need to bust these companies up it's uh i don't advocate for that as an entrepreneur um but at the same time i as you said there's a lot of control putting in into uh a handful of companies and the and the question is how do you monitor that how do you keep everybody safe etc and, and i am not an expert in that area and don't have uh have any clue what we should be doing other than to say it's a great tool and it's uh for entrepreneurs and it can be a stressor for brick and mortars if they don't learn how to embrace it. Well, I agree. At the moment, they're great tools because at the moment, the the, co the cost of entry, the barrier costs are very low. I mean, you can start a Shopify account for twenty bucks a month. That's on that's the cheapest rent you'll find. You're not going to be able to find a storefront for that cheap of a cost. Uh, right. Um, but as fewer and fewer companies own internet real estate the prices are going to go up. I mean, for example, right now, I think the cheapest ads on the internet you can find are probably Facebook, and Facebook also has a glut of personal information. We know this because they keep finding themselves in a bunch of scandals over personal information. Um, I'm worried that Facebook's going to eventually head the route of Google AdSense, which had all of that information, and it used to be dirt cheap to buy ads on Google, and now it's pretty competitive and expensive. It's up there with LinkedIn um, for costs of ads. And as Facebook drives up, I'm wondering... There's going to be a severe need for affordable marketing on the internet, and if the technology that breaks these up is something that we haven't even thought of yet. 
Yeah, it it does make you wonder, and there's so many, thank goodness for entrepreneurship, right? That ultimately entrepreneurs are the disruptors, and all those companies were disruptors at the, at the time they were formed and started too, right? So they're, Hopefully that's what will will happen at some level, and I don't wish ill on any of them by any means, but competition is good, and long as they don't get so big that they prevent competition from happening, then we need to be concerned if they're, if, if that uh, situation happens. Yeah, but I feel like they, they at the point, I mean, at this point in time, they're not worried about competition. Um, there's this Israeli futurist philosopher who, I'm blanking on his name right now, who wrote a book about how um, Silicon Valley is bringing the end of time or the ends of time. And they literally, Facebook and Google invited him on campus to speak about his writing. Um, wow. And he said it was the creepiest thing in the world because he's writing about how they're damaging the global economy and they're giving him standing ovations to read his research to them. Interesting. Yeah. The, the whole thing is really interesting. We live in, um, we live in this time of such rapid technological change too, that we, I don't think we can even predict what's out there. I mean, we've got the, um, the sensor economy happening there. There's just so many, so many cool things happening in medicine and, um, anything you can think of technology, um, artificial intelligence, all, all this stuff is it at a time where, we're going to see so much change in the next 10 years. I don't think we can even envision what it's going to look like. Well, you just have to think about the fact that things have changed so rapidly for the past century. I mean, uh, like the difference between 70 years ago and today, how easy it is to communicate with someone. You, you can literally run a business from America based out of Thailand yes. in a relatively short amount of time today without even necessarily even having to visit the sites, thanks to the internet, thanks to globalization, thanks to uh, being able to hire labor from all over the world. Um, that being said, as the world becomes more global, I'm noticing a lot more shop local, uh, mom and pop shops support those, um, and even nonprofits and education systems that are about protecting your local businesses, protecting mm -hmm. your family businesses, and protecting... Um, just protecting your local economy. I'm, and this goes into sort of one thing that CEL is promoting. You, uh, you are a strong small business advocate and local small business advocate. Uh, what drove you to this line of work or this line of education? What, what, why, why is this sort of your purpose now in Buffalo? Well, if you look at the economy, small businesses make up uh, about 50%, maybe a little bit less of the GDP but about 98% of the, of the, all the total businesses. So, and, and if you think about it too, what attracted me to it is I come out of the small business community, come out of a family business and another business that I started. And I also did a lot of work with uh, national federation, independent businesses, which lobby for small business and was very involved with them 10 years ago or so, and, and got to learn a lot more about small business. But Small business are really what makes communities, in my opinion. You know, you can you can have all the big companies you want, which they're great and they're an important part of our economy too. But it's a small business in the main street businesses, especially that really knit together a community and make and make a neighborhood a neighborhood. These are people that own these businesses. You know, President Obama used to often say the lifeblood of the economy. They're the people that um, you know are your kids coaches maybe 
uh, go to church with you. Maybe you see at the grocery store. So they're not just an entity. Uh, they're, they're part of the fabric of the community. They're, they're not just an entity churning money um, or even creating jobs and putting money into community, but the people that own these businesses are part of the community, which I think is really, really critically important. And I can't imagine a world with just giant businesses where we go on the internet and order everything um, online because we would miss this huge part of what it means to, to be connected to other human beings and not just a machine. So what are some advantages that these smaller and local businesses have? And what are some of the advantages that they might not necessarily be taking advantage of, at least uh, ballparking estimation based on the classes that you've dealt with in the past? Yeah, so some of the, I think some of the things that they, that a lot of small business owners don't take advantage of are really just understanding that often everything is, they're making all decisions and everything revolves around the business owner, which is great up to a certain point. But after eight or nine employees, it's very difficult for a company to scale around a single person. So I think one of the things is just getting small business owners to understand a little bit about um, scaling and, and, and some of the concepts of, of professional management, right? Some of the advantages that they'll, they give you is, as they said before, before they're, as potential customers of theirs, they're part of the community. They they uh, they can actually know you. They can value you. Um, you can feel a sense of loyalty with them because you're actually meeting with the people. They're contributing to jobs in the local community as well as participating in the community. So I think that's all really important. What the other thing is, one of the interesting things about shopping online is it's very difficult to from a picture, get a sense of many things like to touch it, to feel it, to pick it up, to understand what it is, how do you use it? And maybe one of my greatest frustrations that I think if anybody's listening to us later, to remember when supporting your small business community, the, the most, the worst thing you can do to a small business is to pick their brains and go in there and utilize them to learn about a product, learn how to put something together, learn detailed information that you can't get on the internet but then not to buy the product from them because they're they're 10% more expensive than you can find it on the internet. And I think that's a mind shift that we just have to engage in as consumers. And I guess if there's hope for this and for small business into the future, it's generationally, a lot of the work that you and your family do, uh, generationally, I am starting to see a push where people care more about things than just price. And that's on both sides of the equation. Um, consumers buying things are, you know, demanding now of companies that they be um, pay attention not not only to the environment and corporate social responsibility, but to the social sector and say, is there a purpose behind their business? Are they giving back to the community? Are they? Is it more than just a, a, a dollar transaction? And I think that generationally, a lot of the younger generation is demanding this of of companies, and that's something small businesses can can give you as as being part of your community they can give back to the community they can um participate even in in government in your community all types of things where they're there they're active members they can employ people etc we're, we're big online businesses just can't do that they can give you the best price maybe so you think that we need to shift or not we consumers need to shift their personal preferences to pay 
a premium for local goods? You think that it is the consumer's responsibility down the line? I mean, partially consumer, partially uh, firm, obviously. But you think yeah. you think uh, consumers need to start adjusting their preferences to pay premiums think, for local goods? I think goods? Both, both sides. So I think small businesses have to do everything they can to be as competitive as possible. Uh, they have to work smart. They have to try to buy right. They, they should not be expected to... I guess you as a consumer should not ex- have to expect to pay double or, or any ridiculous premium to go a small business to small business. Cause we all have, you know, the utility of money and you're going to spend your money where you can get the best use of it in the end. But from the consumer standpoint, what I mean by that, when you go into, for instance, we used to have a, uh, a retail garden center, which we have since closed, but we were very known in Western New York for, um, water garden supplies and as more and more people started selling water garden supplies on the internet people would come into our store and spend two or three hours trying to understand the water garden the ecosystem that is and how to build it how to put things together that time that they're spending with a small business owner is valuable and you should expect to be they should expect to be compensated for that and i guess what upsets me is when you take that type of time from a lot of small businesses for things that are complicated and then go shop on the internet to save five or 10%. That's a mind shift I want consumers to think about having is you are getting value. That extra five or 10% you're paying from a brick and mortar is in the information that you're gaining, especially with complicated products. It's also an opportunity to invest in your local community. You paying that extra five to ten percent is them now reinvesting that into the community, either growing their store, paying their taxes, or um, investing in purchasing products from other local entrepreneurs. Absolutely, and imagine e- even in the world we're living in today, where you can—I'm sure we're—well, I know for a fact, larger cities, you can order something and have it delivered to your home within four hours. Even that convenience. We have to think about what would our what would our communities look like without storefronts and small business in them. I can't even envision it. What would we do? Sit inside our house and look at our computer all day? And the reason I think small business is going to survive is human beings need to connect to other human beings. That That is just a, a fact of who we are. And I don't see how we can do a great job of that constantly shopping online. And I'm... And, you know what? Do I buy online? Absolutely. Do I buy a lot of books and stuff online? Why do I do it and not go to a, a you know a local bookstore? I do shop at local bookstores, but it's convenient for a lot of us. And I mean, we I'd be lying to you if I said anything different. But I think we all need to find a balance between that convenience and where it makes sense, and then supporting our uh, our local uh, businesses. And maybe an example of that would be some things like you can. You can have flowers delivered right from a greenhouse in South America in 24 hours, but you could also go, they're not going to be arranged. They're going to come in a box. They might be beautifully boxed. They're not going to be arranged. Or you can go to your local florist and support your local florist for about the same amount of money and have something nicely arranged and be supporting your community. So it's just, it's just a, that balance between convenience and supporting the small business community. But I think the world would be a sad place without small businesses. So this this sort of covered uh, consumer responsibility, responsibility. Heading over to the firm's responsibility, personally, one thing I've seen, a trend I've noticed either being on LinkedIn or talking to really young and hungry entrepreneurs, 
is an urge to either get funding before they're ready or grow before they're ready and not taking advantage of the city itself. Um, they want to be, they, they might be like six months old, a sole proprietor, and they're talking to me about expanding to South America or Asia. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you looking at expanding to South America and Asia when you're from Columbus, Ohio, and you could take over Columbus, Ohio, and then expand in Ohio and become a household name in your community? Do you see that this is a bit of an issue? People, um, through the internet, people might have their eyes on too grand of a prize too early and not taking advantage of being leaders in their own community first? Yeah, absolutely. So when you talk about responsibility as an entrepreneur, that perhaps is a great example. So in the uh, in in the technology startup field, I think there's way too many people that want to start a business with one goal in mind, and that's to get rich as fast as possible. Well, the reality is this: anything you do that you're not don't have purpose or passion behind, you might as well forget about it because you're never going to push through when the when the going gets tough. So I always tell people that are thinking of starting something new, make sure you're focused on something you're passionate about and something that has a greater purpose than just solely making money. If just solely making money is your goal, you're probably going to fail. And I think your point about building within a community, depending on the product, um, yes and no, some things may not be right for, for the community you're in. But I do think a lot of young entrepreneurs have the have a mistaken um I don't know, identity of what it means to be an entrepreneur. And, and there's a lot of research shows less than 2%, I believe, of companies ever take any venture capital investment. So the fact that you have to go out and raise money, one is kind of ridiculous. Um, I don't think it's necessary for every business. Two, to do it too early, you're absolutely right. What you know? Have you validated your product? And instead of thinking about building something huge, why not build it with your customers as you go and get constant customer feedback and validation? So you're building something that people that want to purchase it from you want to buy versus you building something that you think is a great idea and going to market and finding out nobody wants it. So that constant iteration of getting feedback and, um, and along the way from customers is very local, if you think about it, which is is really smart way to uh, to build your company. And then I, I think the other part is the notion that you hear a lot, especially in our community, that we don't we don't have enough investment. Well, I I, I kind of call BS on that. I I think when there's good, we don't have enough good ideas yet. Maybe when there's good ideas, investment will follow where investment is needed. But you don't just say I'm going to be an entrepreneur one day and and demand money, go build something, and, and expect it to happen. There's also, I read an article, and I'll have to find it for you because I think you'll be interested in it, about, uh, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, but I may be mistaken, about unicorns and their impact on a um, on local communities. And there's... There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of worry about the quantity of unicorns or billion dollar valuation companies that are popping up out there and being driven by VC valuation versus what's the real true value um, of the company. I guess the real true value is what people will pay for it, right? But um, but what underlies that value other than um, people propping things up and, and smoke and mirrors? So I kind of got on went all over the place with you there, but I, I do think you can use your local community as a testing ground and a beachhead 
depending on your product. I mean, it's possible that you have something like a medical device that has only can be sold in a certain community because that's where all the uh, the big players are. That's possible. But I think a lot of products and entrepreneurs start, um, you could invest more and take your time in the local community. And people need to think about what it means to be an entrepreneur. And there's a lot of wantpreneurs, people that watch Shark Tank and say, oh, I want to do that or I want to be an entrepreneur, but don't realize the hard work it is and, and the passion and purpose and investment of, of blood, sweat, and tears that it takes to, to be successful ultimately. So I do agree with you about Shark Tank and um, a growing trend of wantpreneurs who see people on TV wearing nice outfits and looking for funding. And then I can understand why there's a bit of a glut of people saying they uh, there's not enough funding sources in Buffalo. Because one trend I've noticed is sort of putting the cart before the horses. The priority at the moment is getting funding, not getting clients. Um, they Funding is becoming a bit of an end goal, not building a sustainable business where you have clients giving you money for your time and your services and your products. Uh, have you noticed that trend? Yeah, exactly. So that in a long, what I gave you is a super long answer before, but yeah, focus on the end user, right? First. And the quicker, instead of focusing on funding, because you're not going to get the funding you need until you've validated that people want to buy your product and use it. You've got You've got to be able to do that. And there's a lot of great companies that were formed that early on had a product like Microsoft, um, Apple. They had a product early on. And when you have a product early on to sell and you can keep investors at, at bay, so to speak, it's just kind of this balancing act because your valuation will go up as you prove out your product. Um, so, you know, you'll have to give up less equity if you are going to take in investment. At the same time, that's why entrepreneurship is part science and part art. You don't want to keep investors if you need them at, at arm's length too long and not take the investment you need to scale quickly where uh, maybe one of your competitors would, would run by you for some reason. But it is important for anybody listening that's thinking about entrepreneurship, again, remind everybody the vast, vast majority, like almost all companies, don't require investment. They require Blood, sweat, hard work, talking to customers, a product, salesmanship, all those pieces, patience, perseverance, um, dogged determination. That's what it takes to start a company. I, I agree. And uh, something else then is, is, is it also just, as you said, I really love the uh, just on the go mentality, the learn on the go, the just the Nike swoosh, just do it mentality. Because one of the biggest fears I've noticed is a form of procrastination. People will say that they want to start a business, but they're researching. And then maybe a year goes by or two years go by and they're still in their research and they haven't started their company yet because they want to make sure they know everything about the market. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like, as we mentioned before earlier in this podcast, uh, getting to know your consumers early and just asking what's something that you really want in your life and then sell them that is where is just the starting block to go. I also, uh, to build on, and I also really like how you keep bringing up self-awareness um, because I do think that that uh, conquering your own market starts with conquering yourself and understanding yourself. So what are some lessons that you've learned along the way or some uh, courses that you teach that sort of are ideas that you want to tell our listeners on how they can become more self-aware, either with their product, with um, where they are currently in the world, what their passions are about? Do, do you have any advice on 
building self-awareness? Well, I think I just want to jump back to one thing you just said before, then I'll answer that question about being uh, paralyzed by analysis. So when you're, when you're segmenting markets, so that is one of the things that um, first-time entrepreneurs often get stuck in, you nailed it, is analysis paralysis. And the, you can spend years, as we said when we started this conversation, looking up stuff, get enough information for four to six weeks to move forward, and it doesn't matter what information you have until you talk to potential customers and get their feedback in the end. So, so to answer your question about self-awareness, I, I think a few things that, that um, I've learned over the years is one is learn to learn to listen to feedback and learn to sort through feedback. So as an entrepreneur, a lot of times you believe so strongly in your product that you don't want to listen to anything that anybody tells you. And if you're talking to potential customers, those need to be discovery conversations where you just keep your mouth shut. You don't defend your product, but you use it as an opportunity to do market research, see what they like, see what they like improve. Your job isn't to convince them to buy your product. Your job is to provide the product that they want to buy. And a lot of entrepreneurs um, mix it up. And I think a lot of that is just being self-aware as an entrepreneur. The other, the other part of, uh, of self-awareness I think is super important that I see so many first-time entrepreneurs fail about is the thought uh, without self-awareness and, uh, and you know for self-aware really understanding what we're really good at and what we're not so good at, what you're going to learn really fast is individuals never, ever, ever build great companies. Teams do. And the many first-time entrepreneurs want to do it all themselves. They want to keep it a secret. They don't want anybody to know about it. They want to own everything. They don't want to share anything. They're almost guaranteed to fail because especially in a technology startup, if you look at all the great technology startups, there's a technologist and there's a business person. There's, you know, Steve Jobs and there's Steve Wozniak. There's Bill Gates and there's Paul Allen. You can, you can go right down the list. And I think that's a lot about being self-aware and understanding that as, as humans, we're not good at everything. What are you really good at? And who do you need to surround yourself with to create a team that can give your customer the product that they need? Because as far as I'm concerned, you do not have a business until you have a paying customer. That's how I would define a business. Paying customer, you have a business. Up to that point, you're working on a business or you're working on your dream or whatever it is, but until you have a paying customer, you don't have a business. I, I like that. It reminds me very. It reminds me of a Stephen King quote, which is, I define being a writer as being able to sell a book and pay a bill with it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear more episodes, subscribe to our channel. We're currently available on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcast, Overcast, PocketCast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher. We're now recording. We're on my podcast. So how are you, Makia? I'm good. How are you? I'm wonderful. Tell me more about this idea that you had for your own podcast. Um, so what I'm looking to do is just talk to local artists in the city. Um, and not just artists, just anyone who considers themselves creatives and just talk about um, what culture in New Orleans means to them, what they're working on, and what they see the future of culture in New Orleans.
what they see looking like. What drew you to this kind of a podcast? What drew you to this kind of a culture that you wanted to um, highlight? Well, I'm, I'm from New Orleans, born and raised, and the culture here is just so amazing. And what makes it amazing is the people that create it. And as time goes on, you see that the people that create the culture here are having a hard time sustaining themselves. So they can't always afford to live here. So I just wanted to do a small part in supporting them and bringing awareness to uh, what they create. Thank you very much.